Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Hey, everybody, you're listening to the IoT Security Podcast live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos, and we have an amazing guest today, Mr. Eric Adams. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, Brian and John. Thanks for having me. Well, and thanks for saying amazing. Wow, I haven't heard that. So that's pretty, <laughs> that's really cool. Thank you. That's what you sent me in the email in your rider. So, <laughs> oh, 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 is that my out loud voice? Sorry. <laughs> so we were just talking before the show. I think um, the, the first time we were able to get together with the Phosphorus team was over at uh, FSI SAC in uh, Florida. Uh, boy, now right. it's like seven months ago, right? Yeah, and, it seems uh, like two years ago, but that was awesome. That was a great event because that was the first time for a lot of people to be back at a conference and everybody was just excited to be at a conference, seeing other human beings in real life. So mm -hmm. really awesome event. What, what I'm actually excited about is when I go to conferences now, everyone's not just saying, hey, this is my first time out. So now it seems like people have, they've been out a few times, life is pretty much back to normal, which is yep. which is great to see. It's nice. Yeah. Uh, so Eric, you're a, a cybersecurity luminary. You've been in this space uh, for quite a while. For those of our listeners who don't know you, I was hoping you'd give a little bit about your background, your journey, and kind of how you uh, came up in the space. Yeah. I mean, uh, just a brief summary. I mean, um, worked for HP for like 19 years, uh, started out at the data center um, in HP and then just worked in different security areas for about the last 25 years um, in total of my career. But uh, worked there till about 2015. Went through a really big program with uh, FedRAMP authorization, uh, mm -hmm. which was the first SaaS authorization, a product called Fortify, which is static application security testing. And it was a really big deal because government got to use um, this capability, which was very needed in cloud. And so, I was really happy to be a part of that and then see other agencies adopt it as well. Uh, from there, I went to IBM for just under three years. The same thing, being a FedRAMP strategist, uh, bringing that FedRAMP capability, training and learning how to go through the process for about 30 different business units. Was really excited to work um, doing that. Then I saw an opportunity to get into FinTech about 2018. And for about the last five years, I've been doing fintech uh, once for a Kyriba, which is treasury management. And then the second one was uh, MX. Uh, it's more data aggregation, kind of like Plaid, some of those uh, areas. Absolutely. So, you know, out of curiosity, so, you know, through HP and, the, and later IBM working with folks, you know, moving into the cloud and leveraging FedRAMP. Uh, what were some of the biggest security challenges you saw as people were making that? And I'm sure if you talk to 100 companies, you'll get 100 different responses. But you you had this really broad perspective of people making kind of their big entryway into the cloud. And what what were they running into? What what were the sort of the hot buttons? Well, <laughs> a lot of it is finding out things that you think you know that you don't know. Um, and what that means is documenting your systems and going through security controls that are required because you can make your best assessment at, at what needs to be done secure wise on a system. But one of my good friends um, that I worked with, he said, look, the FedRAMP program, when you go through it, there's no stone that's unturned. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so you're able to see everything that really needs to be done. And then beyond that, there's continuous monitoring. So it doesn't stop at the assessment. There are things that you have to do at a scheduled cadence. And so really what I observed, which is super powerful, is getting these teams together on workshops and going through a one-week on-site workshop, going through controls, being able to document them, being able to document diagrams and you know data flow diagrams, network landscape diagrams, and discovering devices. That's one thing Phosphorus, I got to put a plug in for Phosphorus, does, you know, that's the that's what Phosphorus does is discovers um, devices, IoT and OT, and then is able to understand what needs to be done with the security configuration of those, but also is able to remediate those, which is huge. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's one of the biggest things is understanding what you have, documenting it, making a baseline of where you're at, and then understanding a plan of where you need to be, and then being able to figure out how to build up those capabilities, whether it's um, technical capabilities or people or processes or a combination of all of those in order to meet those controls. Yeah. And Eric, I mean, FedRAMP is an incredibly laborious, long, difficult, expensive process. Um, Many people don't make it uh, or take a very long time (laughs) to get FedRAMP authorization. Um, So how long did it take you? And and is it safe to say, is it safe to say that achieving your authorization for FedRAMP, that entire process, as you said, no stone unturned helped really embedder your overall security posture and implementation by going through that? Is that safe to say? Yeah, totally. Um, and the way that I look at it, so a couple different things is, you know, how long did it take? Well, when I first understood that customers that worked for government and military wanted to use cloud services was about 2012. Mm-hmm. And I was on site at uh, Fort Knox, just south, south of Louisville. And I was there three different times doing training and also setting up um, on-premise uh, systems for the U.S. Army. So, for active duty military and also uh, civilian personnel. And they said, look, you know, this, is, this was at the Human Resources Command, which is a very large um, area of that uh, complex. And they said, we want to focus on our core capabilities. And that's, you know, developing our software which is part of the warfighter system. And we want to use cloud systems, but we can't get this authority to operate what's called ATO. Mm -hmm. And then right literally a couple months after FedRAMP came out and I looked at it and I said, wow, I've worked on NIST 853 systems before with HP's CMS.gov contract doing security configuration. I looked at it and I said, oh, we can do this. And I I didn't realize it, but it was like, wow, you're really taking a bite out of this elephant. And later on looking back, it's like, yeah, you had to take a, you had to eat that elephant one bite at a time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I started out, you know, billing draft paperwork and I thought, oh, wow, this is a lot bigger than I thought. And I finally got through that, submitted it. And then um, there were a few delays, which turned out to be good. But we started off with a kickoff meeting in Washington, D.C. at GSA headquarters in 2014 in February. And it took a year to go through a FedRAMP joint authorization board, a JAB authorization and get approved in February, 2015. So that's pretty uncommon, but mm-hmm. you have to take a step back and look at the firepower that I was able to pull from at HP at the time. So 
there were capabilities and teams who had things like disaster recovery. We had a infra infrastructure as a service in IAS center in Orlando. We had a backup one in Colorado Springs. So we were able to build things that didn't really exist by utilizing those centers and meeting federal requirements because the people knew federal requirements. They were a little bit different, mm -hmm. but they were also, I was able to, you know, talk through the FedRAMP process with them, say, okay, here's what we got to do for this control family. And then the same thing with monitoring. HP owned ArcSight. And so we were able to build up the monitoring capabilities. We were able to work with engineer and development um, of our of our SaaS cloud server or system. And we were able to then modify the code to be able to build the correct logging for the system. So mm -hmm. a lot of these things just surely didn't exist. But yeah. this is what I also learned afterwards going to IBM and saying, okay, this is what I observed. You're going to go through here and you're going to, you're going to go through the controls. Some of these you're going to have implemented, some of them partially implemented, some of them um, not at all. And so you just get that baseline. And from there, you're able to analyze how much work in terms of time, effort, cost is this going to take. And then you're able to push that into like project management and budgeting and return on investment. Mm -hmm. So another, this is probably the most important part of this. And you mentioned it earlier, like how long does it take and how also, the second part of that is how long do you bring on customers? Realizing U.S. public sector um, sales and operations is different. It's mm -hmm. a slower, it is a slower process. Commercial, you can spin up a cloud service. You could sell it to anybody. They like it. They do a proof of concept. They use it. It's great. You write a contract that goes through their legal, your legal, and it's done, right? You, you do a one-year deal or a two- or three-year deal. Now it's a little bit different with government. They have their processes, you know, they're very obviously safe and secure processes that they have to use. And so the good part about that is once you get those customers, they can be customers for almost lifetime as long as you're fulfilling what you're supposed to be doing with the requirements. Mm -hmm. So anyway, long answer to that, but had a lot to uh <laughs> no, that to was input. That was really valuable. And I'm just wondering, when you were at Fort Knox, how much of a threat was there to somebody breaking in by launching some kind of aerosol spray and then <laughs> making all the gold radioactive so that it couldn't be traded anymore? <laughs> because that was the plot to Goldfinger, spoiler alert, in J the James Bond movie. And I just want just are they prepared for that? <laughs> I have a couple of different interesting scenarios from that that I can tell you about. Um, <laughs> no, I actually asked, well, I didn't ask the question. I was around when somebody was talking about it and they said, is there really gold here? And some people are like, no, nah, that's, you know, that's, that's like a myth. And then somebody's like, no, we think there is over by the highway. There's that goes through town and, and uh, it's off. The site is off to the uh, east of there. But there's a white building on one of the exits and they're like, no, we think it's under that white building. So nobody knows. Like, could be people walking around be. with shovels and metal detectors everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, it would be interesting just to try that, but I'm sure you would be, someone would be out there immediately. Um, one thing that I did find out is when I was doing training in a training room, all of the badges have the cat cards to be able to get, or all of the doors have the, the people have to have a badge on their lanyard or their belt clip to be able to 
um, you know, authorized to get in. And so everything is authorized by, you know, roles-based access control and all of that. Um, even, even being able to, uh, you know, and I was there 10 years ago, so things might've changed, you know, to be better, obviously, but anything that they access, of course, you'd put your PIV cat card into your keyboard slot and be able to be authorized, which is really great. But um, they said, look, whatever you do, if you've got a presentation, you use this computer and you use the presentation you've given to us, do not put a USB stick in this computer mm -hmm. or there will be an armed um, guard here <laughs> within about 20 seconds. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I yeah. left all my USB sticks at the hotel after that. I remember when I was with DISA, they actually went around and put epoxy in all the, the USB oh, yeah. slots. I sure. Like, okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no direct memory access or anything. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's all shut down. Same Absolutely. thing also with, I noticed too, again, this is 10 years ago, but with cell phone coverage, um, I was using my GPS to figure out how to get there. And then all of a sudden, like nothing works except for voice and text. That's it. So mm -hmm. everything's shut down and it should be. I mean, it's a secure facility and you can, you can hear artillery. There's the M1 Abrams tanks uh, shooting artillery all the time. And it's pretty cool. It was really fun. And then, you know, I think it was like 730 in the morning. They, uh, they would play um, the music over the loudspeaker, the trumpet, um, and everyone would stop on the base and salute the flag. So if you're driving your car, you literally stop, you get out of your vehicle and salute the flag. And then later wow. in the day, I think like four o'clock. So it was pretty, it was pretty awesome. And another thing, like, do not use your cell phone. Don't raise your cell phone up to your up to your ear to use it, you know, go on speaker or you will be, the MPs will come get you. Wow. And so now, you know, that was back then when, you know, smartphones were kind of new-ish still. And so people were driving around now, that's kind of a law, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's, so it's a secure facility and it should be. Um, but yeah, they take obviously information security very seriously there. Well, very cool. Well, you know, let's, let's pivot a little bit away from FedRAMP and I want to talk about financial services for a bit because you've, You've worked for uh, a few different companies that have really focused on on that arena. I'm just wondering, you know, o over the years that you've been involved with, you know, fintech and that whole that whole world, what seems to be the leading cybersecurity threats at, at this point? Because generally speaking, when I think of financial services, they're kind of tip of the spear because you know people want to rob them. Um, and they're, they're a big target. So they get hit by a lot of nation states and cyber criminals, and they tend to see the more sophisticated attacks in general. So what is it that's kind of uh, piquing their interest right now in terms of cybersecurity threats? Well, if I could put it down to one thing that I want to protect on the defensive side, it's the data. Um, and if you mm -hmm. look at this, and so what I explained before is mostly system type to lock down the systems. But then the way I visualize it is there's another layer above that and that's the data layer. Um, but it's really data and protecting data and access to data. And so, I mean, data is like the new gold. Um, you're mm -hmm. able to do a lot of powerful things. Look at it on the positive side from the com consumer before if you wanted to get credit approval you would fill out a form, you would mail it, it would take a week or two, and then it'd say, oh, wow, it's great, you're approved, or maybe you're not, you're denied. But now there's instant verifications because of the power of that data is you can get instantly approved for something. So if you think about that, 
And there's different levels of approval based on your credit worthiness. Um, maybe there's factors like income, how well you've paid your previous bills, you know, what type of credit you already have, what accounts you already have, different things like that. So really the attackers are, they're going after that data. They want to know that data. Um, it's super powerful. And so that's really the thought process I have when I'm looking at systems is okay where do we where do we propagate data to how long do people have access to it you look at things like apis what is going across the apis and then there's also a compliance layer on top of that mm -hmm. is there pii going across that is there cvv or cvv2 going across it how are we protecting all of that so there's in the fintech world i think the fintech world is really getting a lot better at looking at this but what what I've done too is after the experience going through the federal controls, NIST 853 controls, is saying, wow, um, that gave me an experience to then look at a different type of industry and say, we're going to select really important things to us. And, and again, back in fintech, it's data. And so those controls that are really closely around data, those are going to be really important. And so that's where you kind of build your your own security controls framework. Um, and then obviously you've got your other compliances like PCI compliance or SOC compliance for cloud. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But really, if you're able to explain that to an auditor and that those are the ones you're putting a lot of thought into, I think that makes your system very resilient. Yeah. And it sounds like, Eric, which is understandable, that going through FedRAMP kind of broadened in some way, maybe <clears throat> technologies that you needed to have as an infrastructure to get your ATO, let's say, and you're, you're kind of, it sounds like then you would take that with you, say, into the, the fintech world and, and perhaps use some of that knowledge and expertise to, to better protect data, protect PII. What were some of the technologies maybe that even came from, you know, the FedRAMP side that you leveraged in the fintech side to help with the data and PII's side of things? Yeah, that is a great question. And kind of the methodology and going back to, okay, working in a large company and we make a lot of these things, but then also understanding and even going to the next large company, but then watching the evolution of this, mm -hmm. of look, a lot of companies now are built up of mergers and acquisitions. And so they've acquired a lot of different companies, different capabilities, different products that they're using. And so really those companies now are fo focusing on, you know, only that, and they're really leveraging a lot of third party. And now you're seeing, I mean, go to like, you guys have been to the last RSA conferences, FSI SAT conferences, Black Hat, all of these, look at all the security vendors out there. It's mm -hmm. like multiplied both in depth and width when you, right. you go in there and you're overwhelmed and there's mm -hmm. all sorts of things. So really you see a lot of these different capabilities. And so throughout the year, I feel it's really important for security leaders to understand which ones they should be looking at in terms of their risk. And then, you know, speak to them and speak to others in that market, competitors in that market, and understand the type of capabilities that you, that you really need. So, you know, there are some right now with, like I said, APIs and being able to um, understand discovering your APIs, cataloging your APIs, mm 
having API reuse, understand what's going across that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really where it's at for companies to be on the leading edge of security is to be able to really manage that. And, and also the procurement cycle. I've seen some really good things in the industry to where, you know, the finance departments of a company and their security departments work really close together. And the finance departments that are very security savvy that understand these capabilities and to say, okay, here's, here is our strategy. Maybe we're going to displace some older products. Maybe we're going to use a product line that has maybe some wider capabilities, or maybe they don't do so well in some of those wider ones. And we're going to, you know, choose not to buy that this year and to buy something else. So I see that as a really big, um, up and coming area where companies can really strengthen themselves. And also one more point to add to this, cyber liability insurance. Wow. Mm. (laughs) It's gone way up, right? Yep. And so every year going through this review of cyber liability insurance, and again, plug to phosphorus because I feel that's a capability that just goes out for anywhere from small to medium to large companies. And to be able to say, here's what we really got, here's the state of it, here's the things we remediated, and you can show that to an underwriter. And mm-hmm. that should, you know, it should theoretically lower your premiums and also your increase in your um, your amount of uh, coverage should, mm-hmm. I would feel, increase as well. So, Eric... We mentioned at the onset of the podcast that we had connected at FSISAC, which of financial services ISAC, which of course was filled with financial services companies. And the dinner we were at, there was, you know, back to back discussions about XIOT and problems and issues with it and how to address it, et cetera. Uh, it seems to me like maybe about a year ago, perhaps a little bit more, a little bit less, a lot of organizations woke up and said, you know what? we have a lot of these devices in our environment and not like we have hundreds, we have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or more in a lot of these organizations across IOT, OT network devices. And then they found out that, you know what, these things are mostly Linux and Android and BSD right. and they're running Telnet and SSH and they've got all the common ports and protocols and big hard drives and input output and Wi-Fi and wired ethernet. I mean, they're, they're basically like a laptop. A lot of these, some, in some cases, much more powerful. Uh, and then they say, what tools do we have to address this? And they're looking at their their huge list. Again, these are financial services companies. They're a huge list of cybersecurity tools that they have. And they're like, oh, shoot, we don't really have anything to address this. So my question to you is, why do you think historically has the XIOT space maybe been ignored or has just the addressing XIOT just been too complicated or, or, or why hasn't it been addressed earlier? Because it's not like it's new. It's been around for a while, but what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're probably thinking about what I'm going to tell you because I think we've talked about this before. But when I was at HP, we used a product um, that a guy here where I live in the, you know, Boise, Idaho area built and it was called WebJet Admin. And this thing was like for its time, I think he built it in like 1990 eight or seven or something like that. But using a browser, like not using software, but a browser, you know, non-proprietary, you were able to go out and discover network connected printers and realizing like, okay, companies were starting to 
really do this. And they had an enterprise of all of these systems everywhere. And, you know, we talked to some of the top companies that were doing this. Like I believe Delta was one of the customers back then, State Farm, some of these big ones. And they had printers everywhere, multiple sites, multiple cities. And managing them, they discovered, was a really big headache, right? And the security state upgrading firmware. Um, and now you've got all sorts of things like, you know, certificates on these devices. Mm -hmm. You've got firmware. You've got security configuration settings. You've got, you know, back then you could tell net to these things. Um, then the evolution of being able to SSH to them. So you're turning off these older insecure protocols. And so... It's very interesting. I asked myself the same question because, you know, in that example also, you were able to use management information base, the MIBs of other devices, and also find not only printers of that company of HP, you were able to find other printers as well. And so, really, I thought, wow, this is going to be the way, like, somebody's going to do this, some smart cookie will figure out how to do this for all devices. And it didn't happen. And so... Um, when, when I was a security architect, uh, back in like 2006 through 2010, um, there was another security architect for the imaging and printing group. And his favorite thing would be to get in the middle, man in the middle, attack things. And so, um, at the site, there was a television. He's like, oh, this is going to be so easy. And he fires up like burp suite or something. And, you know, it was an IOT type of TV. Yeah, totally insecure. Like, I think it had default passwords. It was, mm -hmm. it, was aw it was awful. So, really, that didn't happen. But what I feel is there's all of these other companies. Like, look at cloud security posture management. Um, these, you know, they do something really incredible. But I think that's the shiny object right now. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it is needed, absolutely needed. But... If we look at other things, like we look at, you know, the IoT, OT um, type of discovery, configuration, remediation. Um, yeah, that's that's super powerful. I mean, that's amazing. That's It's an amazing capability. Everybody should be running um, a phosphorus capability, I feel. And do you think, Eric, that it starts with discovery? I mean, so on the remediation side, right? And we talked about the issue with these devices, you know. Over 50% of them are deployed with default passwords. If they have been changed, they were changed only when they were installed with some basic password and left, never touched again. There's firmware six, seven years old. There's loads of ports and protocols open, Telnet, SSH, all these things. The certificates are self-signed or out of date. You've got a lot of issues, right? Um, but is it the remediation said, does it start with discovery? You mentioned it, right? A lot of times we don't even know, you know, upwards of 40 to 60% of all the enterprises we talk to have, have really don't have an idea of how many of these devices they have. So I'm wondering, do you think it starts with just the ability to even find them and discover them? And then we can talk about remediation or is it, it's kind of a chicken or the egg. What, which one do you think it is? Oh yeah. Well, here's what I, here's what you guys I'm sure have seen. And here's what I typically see is when you fire up a capability like this, people think they're like, oh yeah, we got these things covered because, you know, maybe they're keeping an accounting of them in their head or in some sort of system or Excel spreadsheet or something. They're like, <laughs> oh yeah, we're good. And then they run something like this and they, it's a whole new world. It's like, nope, that's not what I thought. Mm -hmm. And so it is a it's shocking, basically. And so, 
that's where, and I, I've talked about this before with artificial intelligence in things like uh, using that for security operations like a SIM platform. Really, you get these type of um, capabilities that do discovery or do something that humans humans overlook. They think like, okay, we, you know, we've got this covered, and really they don't. And also, here's here's a second part to this. I was um, in a CISO group meeting, I think this was just last week, and we were looking at where are companies focusing their budgeting for next year. And I know, I don't want to bag on cloud security posture management, but that was like one of the top ones. I'm like, yeah, that's mm -hmm. important. That's super important. If you're building cloud or you're hybrid, you've got on-prem and cloud, super important. But everybody sees that. And then near the bottom was asset management. And there's there's two other, there's two other CISOs and myself, and we're just like, wow, okay. Because I'm, I might be like an old school person, but I believe in the ITIL process where you've got a configuration management database. And that's one of your first things is understanding everything you have mm -hmm. and not by spreadsheet. It's by actually going out, doing discovery, validating that, and then revalidating it at an iteration so that you know what you have. And that's, that's one of the NIST controls too is mm -hmm. that I think it's in the configuration management side where you understand what you have, you have that baseline, but then also you're iteratively doing it, whether it's daily or hourly or whatever it is. So really there's gotta be that part of asset management and configuration management, but then also um, securing things. So like CIS level one baselines, ensuring that you're meeting some sort of a, a minimum threshold of uh, security configuration settings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like it's moving from assumption-based security to evidence-based security, right? So you you yeah. actually know what you've got and, and what it's doing. Right. Uh, you know, you said something that I, I want to drill down on a little bit because I think it's really interesting. A, a lot of organizations, one, you mentioned, they, they don't know what they have. Um, and then they underestimate the impact that that device can have. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the areas that I really see this are devices that help manage other devices in IT. So not the cameras or the printers or the door locks, those are very important, but things that people often overlook are the KB, KVM switches, lights yeah. out management, UPS, racks, um, mm -hmm. storage cabinets. The, these things aren't, they're not as sexy, I get it, as a, as a security camera that's gonna spy on you. But at the end of the day, if you connect to a lights out management yeah, uh, console, you can- you, you can spawn a shell, a virtual terminal, shut the machine down, change settings, upload malware, and it's a little Linux server. Usually they're Ubuntu, and usually they're Ubuntu like version 10 from like a decade ago. Uh, so, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, who cares what, to your point earlier about data security, you could have spent a lot on network security, data security, endpoint security, app security, but here's somebody that just got in because there's no password set on your lights out management and just opened up a shell. And now they're copying or destroying or modifying all your sensitive data. And, you know, do, do you think, I don't even want to talk about business leaders. Do you think security leaders are now grasping that, boy, my, my, my threat landscape is actually a lot bigger than I initially thought. So I think that security leaders need to do a better job of explaining this in a business context to the rest of the executives and the board and also in terms of risk because – so I used to build 20, 25 years ago, I used to build systems with integrated lights out cards that they would just send the systems to anywhere in the world. And so I would get access to them 
and I had access to that card. And if it's admin, admin, and somebody is able to scan and find this, it's game over because mm -hmm. you can upload your own ISO file. It could be a Linux distribution. It could be anything. And then you've got command and control using that. You've got a control point using that server. So, and then you can, you could probably do it undetected as well. Um, so really, I think that that's, it's important to understand the hierarchy and the priority of IOT devices, because I mean, there might be things like fish tank sensors. There was the hack with a fish tank sensor, right? Mm -hmm. And there might be those, but those are, those are less common than things like a lights out card or something like that. So there is a prioritization model that should be seen that says, yeah, these are higher risk. Like these things have got to be locked down and then you work your way down. Eric, are there certain types of attacks and let's just say in the fintech world or your, your work there um, from an XIOT perspective that you worry about maybe more than others? For example, I know in, in many attacks now, they might initially target an IT asset with a traditional attack, phishing attack or something, and then pivot to find an XIOT device to hang out there for a long time. Um, and maintain persistence. Um, and some of the malware we're seeing can actually is focused on XFIL, right? Are, are there, are those attacks you worry about? Is there any type of attack from an XIOT perspective in particular that you, after, you know, considering you well knowledge about this kind of worry about? Yeah. And it mostly comes down to things for convenience or for being able to do a particular <laughs> capability like an office capability right look at look at maybe things that are designed to check people in or out that have network internet access or mm -hmm. to have a room availability that so that schedule conference rooms like those are great they're awesome you know you can block out a room you can do it through your calendar software you can do it right there but those things have to be evaluated because if somebody's able to get on your network, let's say through Wi-Fi or whatever, and they're able to get into that, and then they're able to pivot, like you said, and be able to get into other systems, then do like a credential spraying attack and be able to get credentials and then get credentials that are important that are system mm -hmm. administrator level, and then be mm -hmm. able to reuse those on other systems and somehow you know, there should be obviously a separation of networks between your business um, office operational environment and your product hosting environment. But if they're able to reuse any of those. And so those are the biggest fears that I guess people like me think about when they're thinking about IoT um, devices is, you know, all of that type of scenario that uh, that I just explained is, you know, you got to think in that hacker mindset of, you know, what are they trying to find, you know, and once they're able to get in there, are they then running a scan to look and see if there's unencrypted traffic, like they might find an LDAP server that's not running LDAP S and then they're able to, you know, listen to that traffic and then find an entry point and then exfiltrate data back. So it's, yeah, it's, it's just, again, it's being able to discover all of these things and then evaluate them on a priority and then be able to ensure they're locked down. Yeah, no, that's 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 great. And I, I think that example goes right after, you know, whether it's an LDAP server or some type of unstructured data store or whatever it is, it's these are 
these are important devices. And if you're on an XIOT device and, and no one's paying attention to it, and you're using that to cherry pick what devices to make API calls at or enumerate shares or whatever it is you're going to do against these devices, chances are you're not going to get detected. And you're going to be able to hang out right. and do what you want and try and try and try again for potentially years. Um, mm -hmm. So with that, Eric, as we, as we wrap up here, uh, you know, you've been in the industry for a long time. You've seen a lot of you know, things go wrong. You've seen a lot of things go right. What words of advice uh, would you like to leave with our listeners that are, you know, thinking about XIoT security or other areas in cybersecurity where they're they're just trying to get their arms around it? Any any kind of takeaways for them? Yeah, I mean, I would say obviously there's a lot of things on people's minds, and there's the newest things out there to take a look at, and you know, obviously those are important, but also. Don't ignore the basic things. Like, again, it comes down to configuration management and ITIL principles of understanding everything that you have. Understand what you have in production. Understand things that you have in pre-production or in sandbox testing, whatever it might be, because those can also be attack vectors. Maybe there's things that you thought you decommissioned that didn't get unracked or didn't get the drives taken out and properly disposed of. And so really understanding all of that and being able to, like I said, scan things like IoT devices, being able to use those capabilities that can lock them down. Those are super important. So I think really, you know, having hardware inventory, software inventory, being able to have that updated at all times, being able to reconcile that to a visual diagram, understanding configuration state, that's all super important. Yeah, amazing uh, advice and fantastic discussion. It's so great to have you with us today. Um, so again, thanks to our host, Brian, and uh, our guest, Eric Adams. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, guys. And just remember, everybody, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus, the leading provider of proactive, full-scope security for the extended Internet of Things and until we meet again, I'm John Becky, And I'm Brian Contos. We'll see you next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast.